New Year's is almost always a letdown. You know what I'm talking about? Like the whole New Year's Eve thing? Usually doesn't turn out to be much of a thing after all. It's almost always a, a, a letdown. I'll tell you why. I'll give you some examples from my life, and maybe you've had some similar moments. I grew up as a Pentecostal kid in a very large Pentecostal church in Mississauga once we'd moved home from Israel. Our youth group had 250 kids, and so every New Year's Eve, we would do a big New Year's Eve all-nighter. Pray for your youth pastors. It is not an easy gig. When I was a youth pastor, I did those New Year's Eve all-nighters, and you earn your salary in that one night alone. But Pentecostals are weird, and I can speak about them because they're my tribe. They're a little strange. They are, you know, interested in holiness. They come out of the holiness movement. They're interested in doing things right. And so they are often careful in their social context to be fairly sanitized in what they do. And so our New Year's Eve celebrations for teenagers were mostly sanitized. The reason I say mostly is because a key part of that night and one of the parts that we as the young men of the youth group really looked forward to was the part where we rented out the local community center and got the use of the pool for five hours. And if you ever remember being a 16-year-old Christian young man, you're like, that means half the youth group are going to be in bathing suits, and that's going to be the best day of my life. (laughs) So it was mostly, mostly sanitized as a teenager. Then there's the, let's go to a cottage for New Year's with people who love to play board games. You know, those kind of weird people. Maybe you're those people. I love and respect you, but we're not those people. We have, well, once. This year was the first time my wife ever played a board game in 22 years of marriage. She hates them. Mostly it's because she hates to lose, and she always loses, because she grew up in a family that didn't play board games, so she doesn't know how, and so she gets really frustrated. So we just kind of avoided that one. But there was a New Year's where we got invited by people to go to a cottage and play board games. And I was like, we're really? We're going to play board games till midnight? Like, yes, we are. I was like, settlers of Cal- what? Like, I don't even understand. I got to buy sheep, and it's crazy. And if you have friends who are intent on world domination, be warned. All you're going to play is Settlers of Catan and then Risk, and you're going to have a terrible night. It's not a very fun New Year's. Then, then, then there was the, hey, let's tear the house down for real New Year's Eve party. We had friends who had friends who were building a mansion downtown Burlington, and so they were getting ready to tear down the you know, original 50s bungalow that was there. And so they thought, I know, let's throw a New Year's party at the house and literally tear the house apart as the night gets wilder and wilder. Now, I already told you that I grew up a Pentecostal, so... Wildness is not exactly in my DNA. So by the time the men started discussing throwing one another through the windows, I said to my wife, we need to go. We need to go. And I was like, this is very scary. So that was, that was, whoa. I had no idea that people could get that. Like, I never went to a frat party. I just was never that guy. So I'm like, whoa, this, I need to run away from these people. Then there's the best one. Some of you are still there. It's the, let's try to stay up till midnight even though we have toddlers New Year's. (laughs) You all know that one, right? That's the worst. You do it for several years, and then eventually you look at one another, you're like, this is awful. Why are we doing this? And then that's the end of your New Year's celebration. My wife and I stopped that years ago. We're just like, it's 1030. Yay, go to bed. (laughs) New Year's is always kind of an anti-climax. Why? Because we need a little more. Okay, we need a little more. We need a little more than just a new dress. Right? We need a little more than just a new party concept. We need a little more than just a new resolution, a new gym membership. We need something 
all together new. As in uh, Revelation 21 new. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Here's Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Who is Jesus? Um, He is ultimate New Year's party guy, Jesus. Why do I say that? Because he is the one who makes all things new. And he's doing it for you, and you need it. Okay, keep that in mind as we work our way through this today. He's making all things new for you and for me, and you need it. So do I. This comes clear in verse 1. Then I saw. Then I saw. I saw. This is for you, so pay attention. Make it your resolution to pay attention to the work of God in your life this year. Even now, this morning, pay attention to this text like you have never paid attention in church before because this word is for you. Then I saw. Then I saw. Then, after everything that's happened in the text so far, I saw. So what has happened in the text so far? It is simply true that not many read the book of Revelation And those who do read it often don't understand it. And even those who do understand it often do not apply it very well. And so if you are not tremendously familiar with the book of Revelation, you will miss all of the implication that leads us into seeing the new heaven and the new earth here. Then I saw, after everything that had taken place, so yes, in seven minutes I'm going to give you an overview of the entirety of the book of Revelation. Fasten your seatbelts. In chapter 1, an angel appears to John. This is John the Elder. He's been exiled to the Isle of Patmos, an island that still exists in the Greek island chain to this day. The angel appears to him and gives him very clear instructions. It says, write to the seven churches of Asia. These are seven churches that were located in what is today modern Turkey. And then a few moments into that vision that he's having, John sees Jesus. And Jesus has eyes like fire. His voice is like the thundering of many waters. He has a sword coming from his mouth. And as would be expected when you saw that Jesus, the first thing Jesus says to John is, don't be scared. Right? Don't be afraid. Okay, don't be afraid. It's me. And then he gives him a command. He says, write to my churches. Now we're into chapter 2. In chapter 2, John writes to the church of Ephesus. The ruins of Ephesus are there to this day. They're probably the best preserved ruins from the Roman world. He writes to the church at Ephesus and he says, look, you're patient. You've been enduring, but you've lost your first love. So repent and do the first works. You might be the church at Ephesus today. You might have walked with Jesus for many years, but you have lost your first love, that fiery passion that first burned in your heart when you encountered Jesus for the first time. If you are Ephesus today, repent and do the works you did at first. Do the things you did in the beginning. He writes to the church at Smyrna. He says to them, your suffering 
has been noticed. You've endured it patiently. More is coming. Like, you don't want to be Smyrna. They're like, can, you, can we return to sender? Right? You've noticed all the suffering we've been going through, and we're going to go through more, so we need to get ready. That's what he says to Smyrna. To Pergamum, he says, hey, all that sexual temptation you're enduring in your city, it's not by accident. So get your mind right and keep resisting it. To Thyatira, he says, you're known as being loving and you have many fruitful works, but you are idolatrous, luxury loving, and heretical. And I thought, that's maybe us, the Western church. We are known sometimes as loving. We are known sometimes as having done good works, but in our hearts lurks idolatry, the worship of a false god. Usually that false god is us. And we are heretical. What does it mean, heretical, heresies, different? We worship a different Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible because the real Jesus of the Bible tends to make us very nervous. You know you've stopped worshiping the right Jesus when you're 100% comfortable with him. Okay, The right Jesus should make you uncomfortable all the time. Whoa! Fiery eyes, voice like thunder, sword from his mouth. Ooh, the second you start feeling totally comfortable with Jesus, you need to start getting nervous about your level of comfort. To Philadelphia, he says, sorry, we're in Sardis first. Now we're in chapter 3. To the church at Sardis, he says, look, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're really dead. You ever been in a church like that? Like, why am I even here? It's dry bones. It's dead. Okay, there were churches like that even in the first century. You have the reputation of being a church, but you're really not a church. You're really dead. Repent. Okay, or I'll take your lampstand from you. To the church at Philadelphia, he says, well, look, you've kept God's word patiently, so guess what? You're going to avoid the tribulation that's coming. You want to be the church at Philadelphia. God says, good job. You've patiently endured, and so the tribulation that's coming, I'm going to spare you. To the church at Laodicea, again, we don't want to be them. He says, you're lukewarm, and because you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you. <sighs> vomit you from my mouth. So I wish you were either hot or cold. Because you're lukewarm, we do not want to be the Laodicean church. Now we're in chapter 4 where we see a picture of the throne room of heaven. And here's where holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come is uttered for the first, first time. This is the first worship service we see in the book of Revelation. Chapter 5, we see God's unopenable scroll. Only the Lion of Judah's tribe can open that scroll. And so the Lamb that was slain does. And you're like, wait a minute. Is he the Lion of the tribe of Judah? Or is he the lamb that was slain. Yes, he is both. And in response to this great miracle, millions upon millions in heaven begin singing blessing and honor, glory and power be unto him, be unto him who sitteth upon the throne. Handel stole it from uh, Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation chapter 6, the first four seals appear and the four horsemen of the apocalypse are loosed on the world. One is a conqueror, one is a peacetaker, one brings scarcity and famine, the fifth brings death. And then the fifth seal is opened and the Christian martyrs get their white robes and they are told to take a nap. I like that part. Here's your nightgown, have a good nap. I'm waiting for that day, man. That's a very, very good day. And then... The sixth seal is open and there's a cataclysmic end of the world, day of wrath loosed upon the earth, leading us into chapter 7 where 144,000 servants of God drawn from the 12 tribes of Israel are chosen to serve the Lord around His throne. They're sealed. And a great multitude joins them from every tongue and tribe and nation serving the Lord around His throne. That is us. 
In chapter 8, the seventh seal gets opened and silence reigns in heaven for a time. And then the prayers of the saints are thrown down to the earth and all heck breaks loose. The seven trumpets sound and the first brings with it hail, fire, and blood. And a third of the earth is burned up. The second trumpet sounds and a third of the sea is destroyed. The third trumpet sounds and a star falls from sky called Wormwood and the water is poisoned. One third of the ocean. The fourth is sounded and one third of the sun, stars, and moon are struck. Now we're in chapter 9. And the fifth trumpet sounds and locusts from the bottomless pit strike all those who don't belong to God. And they are given permission to torment them for five hours months the first woe has passed the sixth trumpet sounds and four angels are released from the river euphrates and they kill one third of humanity but the other two-thirds who survive still won't repent in chapter four an ocean striding angel invokes the seven thunders but commands john to seal up their word and then he gives them a prophetic scroll to eat in chapter 11 john measures the temple and tells us about the two witnesses and my brother jess and i who grew up in the city of jerusalem always had a secret hope that the two witnesses is not moses and elijah but it is us and here's why And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom in Egypt, Jerusalem, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming. You can see why I want to be one of those guys. My brother and I often joke about it. He'll send me like a picture from the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. He's like, I'm getting ready, bro. I'm like, yeah. But it's probably Moses and Elijah. Then the seventh trumpet sounds and there's another worship session in heaven. The Ark of the Covenant makes an appearance and then in chapter 12 we meet the woman, the child, and the dragon symbolic of Mary, Jesus, and of course our adversary, the devil. We're halfway through the book now. Then war breaks out in heaven and Satan is cast down to earth and makes war against Jesus' people. In chapter 13, the first beast shows up and he's a blasphemer. Then the second beast shows up and he's a miracle worker and he's the one who introduces the mark of the beast which everyone must have in order to buy and sell from This story, we get the whole idea of 666. In chapter 14, the lamb and 144,000 throw another worship session, but this one is by invitation only, and three angels begin preaching to the earth to repent, and then the earth is reaped by Jesus and two angels, and they gather in. Yes, it's where the song comes from, the grapes of wrath, and the winepress of the wrath of God gets trodden, and in chapter 15, the seven angels with the seven last plagues are loosed, while those who endured the last 
last days have another worship session on the sea of glass. And I'm going to watch for you there. In chapter 16, the seven bowls of the wrath of God are poured out on the earth. The first brings with it boils. The second brings the sea turning to blood. The third brings with it the rivers and the springs of water turning to blood. The fourth brings with it the sun going so hot that it burns up the people of earth. With the fifth, darkness falls on the kingdom of the beast, but people still don't repent. With the sixth, the Euphrates River is dried up so that it can become a highway for war. With the seventh, there is a great earthquake and hailstorm, and the cities of the world are destroyed. That's probably what was being referred to in Revelation chapter 11. In chapter 17, we meet the great harlot who is drunk with the blood of the saints and the whole world is complicit in her crimes. In chapter 18, an angel announces the final destruction of Babylon and he calls us out of her. In 19, a party gets thrown in heaven and this is where the hallelujah chorus gets invented and the wedding feast of the Lamb is announced and then... Tatted up, warrior Jesus shows up to whoop some Balaam's you-know-what. In chapter 20, the beast is bound for a thousand years and the survivors of the great tribulation resurrect and rule and reign with Jesus for a thousand years. And then eventually, the devil and his nations have this brief comeback after a thousand years and they surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire falls on them from heaven and consumes them. And the devil is thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented day and night forever. And then we have the great white throne judgment where the books of deeds are opened and every one of us is judged according to the deeds that we did while in the body. So all of us are absolutely sunk because you and I know that all of us left to our own devices are basically horrible people. But then, thanks be to God, the book of life is opened and all those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life are thrown into the lake of fire, which brings us to Revelation chapter 21 where I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Then I saw, after all that takes place, maybe you missed it. Until now. Here's the point. Here, this is very important. All the water under the bridge in your life is part of all the water under the bridge in all of our lives. All the darkness, all the pain, all the suffering, all the trial, everything you've suffered, all that water under the bridge is part of all the water that has flown under the bridge ever. Okay, you're part of a very big story. You are part of a very big story. Did you see yourself there, perhaps standing on the sea of glass, worshiping the Lamb? Did you see yourself included in the saints gathered around the throne, saying, holy, holy, holy? Maybe like me, you saw yourself as one of the martyrs killed for their testimony for the Lamb during the Great Tribulation. Maybe you see yourself as one of those clothed in white, hailing the King of kings and Lord of lords. The point, friend, is this. You are part of that very big story. So you need to understand all of your successes and all of your sufferings in that light. Do you see it? Everything you've ever suffered, every success you've ever had is really not that big a deal because it's part of that vast river that flows under that bridge of all bridges. It's part of that stuff that's eventually going to be jettisoned into the sea of God's forgetfulness. And yet... You have a place 
in that vastness. So your suffering, your success, it's really not a big deal. But the fact that you belong to Jesus and you are part of his nation, that's about all the encouragement you ever need to live. Am I right? You belong. You belong. Having heard all that and having lived everything you lived, it's very clear why we need a new heavens and a new earth, right? Isn't it? Having heard all that, very clearly we need a new heavens and a new earth and we need the right kind of new. In New Testament Greek, there's two kinds of new. There's naos new and kainos new. Naos new means new in regards to time. Okay, time. So this is a new shirt. I mean, relatively speaking. This one is only eight months old. My other one is eight years old. Good news is I still fit into a shirt from eight years ago. Okay, so it's new in regards to time. It's naos new. Kainos new is Amaya Patrick kind of new. If you've not met little Amaya, you should meet her. She's just this gorgeous, beautiful baby who smiles every time she sees me. And I thought it was just me for a while, but then I saw her doing the same thing with everybody. Thanks a lot, Amaya. I thought we had a special thing going on. She's a doll. She's amazing. She is kainos new. She didn't exist, and now she does. And your life will never be the same. Kainos new. New in regards to form. Behold, I make all things new in regards to form. I make all things kainos new. Friend, the form of our existence needs renewal. The form of it. Amen? The form of your existence needs renewal. You don't need a new drug. You don't need a new diagnosis. You don't need a new diet. You don't need a new dress. You need Jesus and what he does. What does he do? Verses 2 through 4. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Hine mishkan Elohim imanashim. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Veshachan betucham. And he will dwell with them. Vehem yihiyulo le'am. And they shall be his people. Vehu ayalahem la'elohim. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye. And death shall be no more. And there shall be no mourning. Nor crying. Or pain. For the former things have passed away. Who is Jesus? He's Frank. Y'all haven't watched Father of the Bride? Part one or part two. They're both great. Definitely on my top 10 movie list of all time. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go home this week and watch The Father of the Bride, part one and two, and then send me a thank you note. I don't get enough thank you notes. That was awesome. Thank you. I love you. Once in a while, it's nice. Frank is a wedding coordinator. He's awesome, fabulous. This is what I suggest. How do I know that Jesus is Frank? Well, because the second part of verse 2. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I thank the Lord that I lived long enough to get to this day to preach this verse to you. Because even as a teenager, I sat under preacher after preacher after preacher who butchered 
this verse. And even at 16, I knew it. Because I always heard prepared as a bride adorned for her husband preached this way. You better do what you need to do to be ready for Jesus when he comes back. Except you don't. Why? Because prepared is hetoi masmenen in the Greek. And hetoi masmenen means having been made ready. This means that as you walk with Jesus all your days by the power of his Holy Spirit, Jesus is getting you ready for him. We, ch- we changed this room. We changed it all, though. Jesus is Frank. Receive it. He's getting you ready for him. And he's pretty excited about it. And he's not keeping quiet about it. Because he's about to fulfill the promise of Abraham and pull out his hanky. Verse 3 to 4 again, because it's so great. I heard a loud voice from the throne. He's not keeping quiet. Saying, what's he saying? Ooh, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. They will be his people and he will be with them as their God. Where does that come from? It comes from Genesis 17. From the first promise God ever made to his people. His covenant that he cut with Abraham, his friend, contained what words? You will be my person, and I will be your God. And all of your descendants after me, they will be my people, and I will be their God. The Lord loves to bring things full circle. So if you're caught out there on the Ferris wheel, and you're like, I don't know what's going to happen, just stay on the ride. He's going to bring you full circle. Believe it. Anyone who can testify to this being true, raise your hand. If the Lord has ever brought you from a long way, keep it up. If he's brought you full circle, even though you had no hope, raise your hand up. Keep it up. If he ever, ever brought you from a long way. Okay, now those of you who have no hope today, look at these hands. These are saints testifying to you that God is good, that he does bring things full circle, that he will not leave you alone. Everybody clap your hands. Yes, Lord. Hallelujah. 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 Right? You're not alone. Ooh, he's excited about it. Who is Jesus? He's shouting, with us dwelling, promise-keeping, tear-wiping, death-killing, comfort-bringing, old-order-annihilating Jesus. And he's the one seated on the throne who says, Behold, I make all things new. Like he was at the beginning, he's a maker. What did we learn from John? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. God is a maker. The Logos is a maker. Jesus was a maker. 
And at the end, he is still who he has always been. He is a maker. Behold, I make all things new. Here's why I have a sermon for you today. And worship team, I'm done. I'm going to do the gospel and then you can join me. Here's where I found my sermon. The king is the active agent in creation. He's the active agent in redemption. He is the active agent in restoration. He is the active agent in renewal. He's the active agent, not you. If you remember one thing from today's sermon, if you remember one thing from this year at Grace, remember this. He is the active agent, not you. He's the active agent, not you. He is the active agent, not you. He's the active agent, not you. He is the active agent, not you. He's the active agent, not you. He's the one who created everything that is and called it good. He's the one who put two trees in the garden to force our parents to make a choice. He's the one who banished them from the garden after they made the wrong choice. He's the one who did not leave them and their descendants alone in their sin, death, and damnation, but who wooed them back to himself through the prophets, through the Old Testament law, and through ultimately the ministry of his son, Jesus, whom he sent into space-time history so that he could go to the cross, so that as he hung there, he the Father might place on him the son the iniquities of us all so that he might suffer and die in your place for your sin because he was not the kind of man to stay dead because he would rise again the third day defeating the power of Satan's sin death and hell forever so that he could ascend to his father's right hand so that he could sit down on his throne so that he could intercede for you until that day when he stands back up so that he can come back to judge the living and the dead and to inaugurate his kingdom which will have no end a kingdom in which he has prepared a place for you. You know, somebody say something. Somebody say something. Sorry, I'm preaching like we're at the cathedral and there's 450 people there. Ooh. He's the active agent in creation, not you. It's his house. It's his party. You're his date. And you're in for a very good time. Which is why New Year's will always be a letdown. Except with Jesus, the wedding-coordinating, shouting, with-us-dwelling, promise-keeping, tear-wiping, death-killing, comfort-bringing, old-order-annihilating, throne-sitting, new-making, active-agent, ultimate New Year's party guy.